G'day friends and welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next Podcast. By now you know the drill. Share, subscribe, rate and review the show on, uh, on iTunes or however you're listening to this podcast that is Coming Up Next, the podcast. Uh, you do that. I'm going to keep bringing you awesome content every week for free. Amazing guests with amazing insights on amazing careers and amazing lives for you, my amazing listeners. Uh, we'll keep that bargain going. And here is episode 107. I just finished reading your book, Real Love. Uh, it's really just an amazing um, book of, uh, I guess, insight into the kind of boundaries and walls and, and um, ways that we kind of remove ourselves from or protect ourselves in a weird way from loving ourselves. Um, uh-huh. I think one of the things for me is the idea that so much of the way that we treat ourselves is reflected in, in our creativity and, and, and our self-expression. Uh-huh. Well, I think that's true. You know, as a writer, they always say, um, just write that really crummy first draft, you know, yeah. and it's, it's so difficult. Oh, I don't know how you do it on film, but you know, uh, you know, it's so difficult to do that because the tendency, my tendency certainly is to like craft every single line over and over and over again and edit it and try to get it to be seemingly perfect. And then you end up with nothing. You end up with three lines, you know, and they're not that good anyway. Sharon Salzberg is a central figure in the field of meditation, a world-renowned teacher, and a New York Times best-selling author. She's played a crucial role in bringing meditation and mindfulness practices to the West and into mainstream culture since 1974. She's the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society and the author of 10 books, including New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, her seminal work, Loving Kindness, and the book that we're going to speak about in this episode, Real Love. With her humorous, down-to-earth style of teaching, Sharon offers a secular and modern approach to Buddhist teachings, which makes them incredibly accessible. I couldn't recommend checking out her work enough. She's also a regular columnist for On Being, and I can vouch for the episode that she did with Krista Tippett. Go on iTunes, find it, download it, consume it right now, and then head to SharonSaltzberg.com where you can find information about all of the books that uh, that we do talk about as well as uh, links to download her podcast, The Meta Hour. And, you know, while you're on iTunes, you can uh, find the Coming Up Next podcast, which you can uh, share, subscribe, give a five-star rating, and maybe leave an awesome loving-kindness review for. So without further rambling, here is episode number 107 of Coming Up Next, my interview with Sharon Salzberg. So I'd love to talk about the book and the process of of Uh writing Uh it, but I'm I'm interested to know a little bit about you and your kind of life and your upbringing, mm-hmm. um, and how that may have 
I guess, brought you to this point of writing real love? Oh, thank you. Well, I, uh, you know, I began meditation practice in January of 1971. Uh, and I had been going to college and then went to India um, in my junior year, my third year of college. It was an independent study program uh, sponsored by the university that where if you created a project that they liked, you could go anywhere in the world theoretically for just a year and then come back into your final year. And so um, I, I say that in part because meditation was meditation in terms of actual methodologies and techniques and the how-to part was not easily found in those days. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was not easy to come upon. And so uh, I grew up in the East Coast of the U.S. and I, you know, I went to Indy before I'd ever gone to California. And um, it, it took like some really kind of enormous uh, initiative and sense of intention. And like for many people, mine was born out of a lot of suffering. I'd had a really uh, difficult, traumatic childhood. And uh, I went to college when I was 16. I went to India when I was 18. Wow. Um, because I was very much a, a kind of seeker. And uh, it's kind of an intriguing question you know we all talk about these days uh you know now everything is so much more accessible it's so much more available you don't need to have that kind of overwhelming motivation mm. in order to access uh meditation techniques so and you were you know, brought up in a in a jewish household is that right yeah my my well i basically grew up with my grandparents after i was nine my mother died when i was nine so uh and uh, everybody was Jewish, and my grandparents were uh, Eastern Euro European immigrants, so uh, from Poland, and so that was a very um, kind of traditional household. So, was there something in you that was, I guess, kind of rebelling against that culture or that tradition, or was it you just didn't feel connected to it? So, you, or you felt connected to something else? Um, I think in that era, you know. Uh, I, I wasn't rebelling per se, but the things I wanted to find, like how, what kind of uh, mental training or discipline could I undertake to actually change uh, to feel happier, it, it wasn't really readily available. I think Judaism these days is different. Um, and, you know, the idea of meditating and, and practicing is not so strange. In those days, you know, most of us either had a sectarian a uh, very secular background, or we had a, a kind of, um, you know, it's a cultural institution, but it, you didn't know what to do every morning to deal with the fact that you were afraid, you know, mm. or something like that. And what I found in Buddhism or what I heard existed in Buddhism uh, was were some very practical, direct techniques to deal with the things coming up in your mind and to be happier. And, I wouldn't say I went to India to become a Buddhist. I wasn't at all interested in, and I'm still not interested in the label, you know, uh, but to really learn the how-tos of meditation. Mm. Do you remember the first time that you had a kind of spiritual experience or that kind of, uh, I guess, transcendental experience? Um, I remember the first evening of my first meditation retreat, I began meditating in the context of an intensive 10-day retreat. Asen Goenka was the teacher, and 
he had just left Burma and come to India. And um, I wouldn't necessarily call it transcendental, but there was this moment very early on that first evening where I, I felt there's truth here. There's very profound truth here. There's truth here for me. And, and like, I belong here. What did that kind of, what did that spawn in you? Well, a commitment to stay, actually to stay past my year, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did go back, finish college. Um, uh, and I ended up getting two years of independent study credit. And I went back to India to continue practicing. Yeah, wow. And so what was the course of events that led you to bringing what you had learned and discovered in India uh, back over to the United States? Uh-huh. So the second time I was leaving India, uh, it was 1974. I was coming back to the States for what I was convinced would be a very short period home. Uh, and then I was going to go back to India for the entire rest of my life. Because, um, I, you know, by that point, I was like so happy there. And I love being a student and uh, being near my teachers and so on. So I went to see one of my teachers. Uh, to say goodbye and just get her blessing um, for my journey. And, and uh, there was a woman, her, her name or her nickname was Deepama or Deepa's mother, um, Deepama. And uh, she lived in Calcutta. So I went to Calcutta to see her and say goodbye. And uh, my friend, Joseph Goldstein, whom I'd met maybe, uh, I met him at my very first retreat, had come back already to the States. He'd been back about six months. And so when I went to say goodbye to Deepama, she said to me, when you go back, you'll be teaching with Joseph. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. She said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> and uh, then she said two things that were very powerful. She said to me, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And, um, and that was an amazing thing hearing from her because uh, she'd gone through tremendous suffering in her life, lost her uh, husband, lost two children, and that's what had impelled her to start meditating. And uh, and somehow she had turned all of that grief and all of that sorrow into this tremendous, unfathomable compassion. And uh, so for her to say that to me was extraordinary. And then uh, she said, you can do anything you want to do. It's your thinking you can't do it that's going to stop you. And, I left her room, we probably, we call it a tenement um, room, uh, and walked down all these dark stairs, and I kept thinking, no, I won't, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and then I came back to the States and uh, went to see Joseph, who was in Boulder, and, uh, Colorado, um, with this place, Naropa Institute had just begun, it was their first summer, and he was teaching, and Jack Cornfield was teaching, living down the hall, that's where we met him, and um, we began getting invitations to lead retreats, and I thought, oh, I'll just, you know, co-lead a few and then go go back to India. And then it was a few more, and then it was a few more, and then we started the Insight Meditation Society in 1976, and one day I woke up and I thought, oh, she was right. Huh. And two of the kind of uh, the cornerstones of the Insight Meditation Center that I, I was reading about are the, the ideas of Vipassana and Metta. Uh -huh. um, insight and loving kindness. How have you kind of seen these ideas evolve over the years? Uh, well, I mean, they're very, 
they are the kind of pivotal values, wisdom and compassion, or or insight and loving kindness. You know, different ways of saying it. And um, they're also uh, each sort of particular techniques or methods of meditation where you can uh, devote yourself to the particular cultivation of insight or the particular cultivation of loving kindness and compassion. And it's not that you never get any, you know, insight when you do the one and you never get any loving kindness when you do the other, but uh, there are ways of, of real dedication uh, and they work together, those different styles of meditation. So, um, I first heard of metta or loving kindness meditation at the end of my very first retreat in, in January 1971, where Goenka led just a few minutes of loving kindness, almost as a kind of ceremonial way of saying goodbye. And I was immediately intrigued by it and wanted to know more. And I, you know, found out just through reading that there was a particular method that you know, you could choose and, and cultivate it, but I didn't get a chance to actually do intensive loving kindness practice with a teacher until 1985 when I'd gone to Burma uh, for three months. And I, I did like this immersion period in loving kindness. And so uh, I, I, you know, I brought the technique back um, to the States and began teaching. And uh, my first book was called Loving Kindness. It came out in 1995. And so, um, you know, there are ways in which most of the research and the uh, the earliest studies have been around mindfulness, and there are ways in which loving kindness is, is and compassion certainly are qualities that are intriguing people, and um, the world could use them yeah. for sure. And so, you know, more and more people are, are both researching and, and practicing um, those tools as well. Would you mind just explaining what loving kindness, what a loving kindness meditation is, I guess, just in brief? Um, yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, if uh, uh, it's considered a practice of generosity, like generosity of the spirit. So we're offering um, a particular way of paying attention to ourselves and to others. So instead of just looking at our own flaws, for example, or wishing ourselves well or uh in a store, you know, maybe there's a shopkeeper, we, we tend to look through or objectify. Um, and in effect, we look at them, we hold them in our, our hearts, our minds and wish them well. So uh, the um, resting place for our attention in a loving kindness meditation is a silent repetition of certain phrases like, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. Uh, and we kind of do an arc, beginning with ourselves uh, and ending up with all beings everywhere, with all of life in, in making this offering. That's amazing. How, how have you found that helps you particularly with, with your suffering or, um, or you know, any sort of self-doubt or the lack of self-compassion that you've had? Well, I mean, for one thing, it's... it's uh, um, it's a very interesting practice because the um, the benefits, you know, really made, let's say you formally practice 20 minutes a day, you know, every morning you sit uh, and do the technique, the benefits that come, you may never see in that 20 minute period, but you'll find you're a different person, you know, in life, which is where it counts. Uh, different with yourself when you make a mistake when you you know 
blown it in some way. How forgiving are you of yourself? How much resilience do you have? How, how easily can you bounce back and start over? Or how are you meeting a stranger um, where you, uh, you know, normally would be very distracted and, and kind of not interested in them, but very self-conscious. Like, what do they think of me? Am I okay? You know, uh, that changes, you know, and how are you, uh, you know, in all kinds of different situations, um, you find that you're actually quite different. And so it's a little bit frustrating for people sometimes because it's in that formal 20 minutes a day of, of dedicated meditation that we tend to look for signs of progress, but that isn't where they're going to appear. And uh, particularly, they say the Buddha taught loving kindness is the antidote to fear. So any situation that is kind of resting on, on old fears, you will find that you've shifted, you've changed. So it's more about shifting a mindset than it is about kind of an immediate result. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, it's not that the results are like 10,000 years away, but, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, like a, a story I often tell about myself is, um, you know, before I got the chance to go to Burma in 1985 uh, and do that immersive period of loving kindness with a teacher, um, in 1976, we opened the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and we uh, had a month before there was any programming. So those of us who were there decided, oh, well, you know, we'll sit ourselves for a month. We'll do a kind of self-retreat. And uh, so I thought, okay, I've got a month. I don't have a teacher here, but I've always wanted to do loving kindness meditation. By this time, I knew how you did it. You know, you had phrases and you started with yourself and, and so on. So I thought, I'll do it for this month. So uh, I did loving kindness for myself for the first week and just all day long silently repeating these phrases. And I felt just nothing. It was like a completely dreary week. And then something happened to one of our friends in, in Boston. So several of us had to suddenly leave the retreat. And I was up. Uh, in one of the bathrooms getting ready to leave when I dropped this big jar of something that just went down on the tile floor and the, the jar shattered and the stuff went everywhere. And I can remember the very first thought that came up in my mind was, you are really a klutz, but I love you. <laughs> and I thought, look at that. You know, you could have given me anything in the course of the year. And I could not have honestly said so. Uh, the year, the week, it felt like a year. <laughs> you could have given me anything in the course of the week, and I would not have been able to honestly say something had happened, but something had happened. You know, like on a level that wasn't very emotional, it wasn't like this big breakthrough, like, wow, I love myself. You know, it, I was really shifting inside. Yeah, wow. And so you mentioned before that your first book, Loving Kindness, was, uh, was released in 1994, was it? 95 95 sorry um what was the what was your pathway from bringing back and bringing these teachings back and starting them the insight meditation center to deciding to start writing and and putting your teachings out in in books well most of my uh colleagues you know uh joseph had a book that came out much earlier Jack Cornfield had a book that came out much earlier. Um, 
and it was just the way, you know, that uh, it was early on in, in this wave, you know, but um, in Asia, you know, it, uh, things were very different, like publishing, so-called, meant, um, you know, maybe someone, your cousin had died or something, someone in your family had died, <clears throat> and you'd go off with a donation to the monastery, and you'd say, please print a certain number of copies of this text to give away for free distribution in my cousin's memory, you know, to honor her. And, and so uh, there was no such thing as like publishing, you know, and in, mm. in our sense of it. And so it's interesting, just one generation later, you know, it's very different. And, um, you know, it was all, uh, it was very exciting. It was kind of unknown. And, uh, just to see what might happen and, and amazing things do happen. I've, I've seen that. I'm sure you've seen that, you know, with uh, the things you've created, you know, everything from uh, there was a person I'd lost touch with who I met at a conference that I liked and we just kind of liked each other and well, we lost touch. And then uh, after my book came out, she told me she was in a bookstore and my book fell on her head. Just <laughs> like wow. fell the shelf and said oh i'm gonna get back in touch with her you know or yeah uh to people telling joe i remember somebody once told joseph um he was working on a cruise ship and he found one of joseph's books in the trash started reading it and like totally changed his life you know mm. so. it's amazing the way that these yeah. cross sections can happen yeah uh, i definitely have found through doing a podcast and you know putting work out that you know, you just you you, you kind of never know where things will lead, and the people that you'll get to connect with, or meet, or or reconnect That's with. As right. well. So, coming into I suppose writing real love, yeah, and, and putting this book out into the world. What was what was the inspiration for for taking this step and putting this sort of um, philosophy or um, insights out into uh, into paperback form? Well, even, you know, um, you know, just the nature of uh, the, the words, you know, like loving kindness is the common translation of a word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist texts. Um, the word is metta, M-E-T-T-A. And in fact, if you look at a, a photo, say, of the Insight Meditation Society, you'll see we have that word up above the doorway when we first moved into the building, it was a Catholic novitiate. It was run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, and that's what it said above the doorway. And we got somebody to get up on a very tall ladder and ask them to change the words. So it, it said something about us. And so that was meta. And, um, you know, for a long time, scholars and translators have been saying to me, you know, loving kindness is such an odd term. Why don't you just say love? That's what you mean is love. Uh, but love is an incredibly complicated word for us. You know, we mean so many different things when we say love. I mean, loving kindness is not the kind of word you would hear, be over here from the next table at a cafe, for example. You know, people don't use that word. And my concern about that translation, loving kindness, is that it might make the quality of the heart itself seem a little bit arcane and removed from day-to-day -day life, which it's not. So that would make love a, a better choice. But, you know, we love our frozen yogurt. We love our 
new backpack and we love, you know, I will love you as long as the following 15 conditions are met. And yeah. I would love myself as long as I never make a mistake. And, you know, that's a pretty different state than that, that sense of meta. Um, you know, and so, uh, these days I tend to translate meta as connection, a very profound sense of connection to ourselves and ultimately to all. Um, and so in some ways, I guess I was motivated by trying to take apart that term love and, uh, which in our time in many ways has gotten really degraded and represents weakness and gullibility and all kinds of things. And I wanted to almost like reclaim the word and say, wait a minute, you know, this is, this is like our greatest strength and, uh, let's take another look. Hmm. And I think to your point, you know, where we create such rigid conditions for ourselves and for other people, for the giving and receiving of love, uh, when it really is the most powerful tool or chemical or action. Um, I don't know why I'm saying or, it's kind of and all of those things, but, you know, you you open with this idea of the stories that we tell ourselves and how we're very good and very conditioned on an unconscious level to talk ourselves out of giving ourselves love and giving ourselves compassion and loving kindness. Yes. You know, I mean, and, you know, uh, there's another chapter in the book that uh, I quite like. I, I had a freelance editor who felt, you know, that was enough after the stories we tell ourselves. But I really wanted to write something about the stories others tell about us. Yeah. And and she kind of counseled against it until, you know, sometime down the road in the process. She said, no, this is okay. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, I'm very fond of that other chapter because also the world is always telling stories about us, you know, and who we are and, and uh, what we deserve and things like that. And I think it takes a great strength of heart to, to say, no, I, you know, this is who I am and I deserve to be happy because everybody does. Mm. Um, the question is not, you know, whether it's right or wrong to want to be happy. The question is more like, can we figure out how, you know, and and not be so beguiled. So, for example, a common story in the world is uh, you will feel better about yourself if you can only put other people down, you know, if you kind of demean them and if you're, uh, you know, contemptuous or funny, but, you know, like uh, very much in a sense of self and other and, you know, uh, but really, you know, it feels so terrible to constantly be putting others down. And it's constant because there's always somebody new you have to compare yourself to. And, you know, uh, it's some we have so much more happiness just by, you know, being ourselves and enjoying what we have and, and helping lift others up. It's a very different story about where happiness is to be found. So why do you think people have a compulsion to to do that and to connect in this really kind of fear-based or negative space? Well, I, I think there is tremendous cultural imperative, at least in the States, to do that. I and mean, if you look at entertainment these days, um, uh, 
you know, in terms of reality TV or something like that, <clears throat> which I don't usually watch, but sometimes at friends' houses, they make me. Yeah, I know that feeling. And then these competitions, you know, like somebody had me watch a cooking show once and um, I found it devastating, you know, because I don't, I don't know that they're all like this because I don't watch them, but, you know, this particular show, like, uh, in letting somebody go instead of saying, well, you know, that was a really good effort. I think, um, <clears throat> you know, if you considered being bolder in your use of spices or something, uh, it would be even better. Um, best of luck to you. You know, the comment was, take your knives and go. And it was like, you don't deserve to be alive. And I thought, oh my God, you know, like this is entertaining. Um, you know, so there's a great cultural imperative uh, to do that. And also, you know, some people would say like evolutionary biologists would say that um, we have a kind of negativity bias that we exist in some ways as though we were still living in the jungle and uh, really just looking for threat, looking for danger. That's what we tend to notice. And it, it actually takes intentionality to notice the good, you know, and to celebrate it. That You know, that's not going to happen automatically. We're not wired that way. Um, and, you know, I think, I don't know, maybe that's true, but the uh, intentionality can be seen as creativity, actually. It doesn't need to be seen as force, you know, or pretense or, or hypocrisy or something like that. Like, I'm going to make myself happy you know by looking at the bright side of things or or something like that yeah i guess that kind of happiness and that loving kindness becomes an art form in a way mm -hmm. i think you know it, it it does take very little effort to find the faults in things but it you know it can take a, a, a i guess a lot of will or um yeah. or yeah. a deliberate kind of composure to find the positive aspects of things or to live in a loving kindness or with a loving kindness, compassion or awareness. And I yeah, also... definitely. It's not going to happen automatically for most of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't really think it takes will, you know, um, I, I think it does. It takes experimentation. You know, we have to try it out. We have to see what it's like. We have to, you know, step out of our comfort zone, maybe, you know, walk into that store and look at the person working there and not through them. Uh, we have to spend a few moments a day, here's something really outside of our comfort zone, spend a few moments a day thinking of the good within ourselves. Mm. You know, which makes a lot of people kind of sick to think about. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's not to pretend that everything's perfect or we're perfect, but we give so little airtime to the good we've done today or the good we've experienced today or even our potential for change. We spend so much time thinking about the mistake we made and the thing we could have said better and the really stupid comment we made. And, you know, and we just go over it and over it and over it until our whole sense of who we are and all that will ever be just collapses around that comment and it's not to say the comment was inconsequential it might have might have real consequences but that's not all that we are ever you know so let's broaden the perspective and really look at the truth of our experience from a, a more holistic way yeah how 
you describe love as a verb. In fact, there's a whole section in uh, in Real Love about love as a verb. I wonder if you could speak on that for a moment because, you know, love for so many people is, or the definition is, uh, more of a chemical reaction than something that's active. Yeah, I mean, I think it's active, which means also it's always changing and and moving and shifting. And, you know, we tend to think of love as static, like I've got it, you know, or I don't more likely. Um, and, and we also, you know, tend to think of it as a kind of commodity and very external to ourselves. Um, I think one of the big realizations I had in Burma when I was doing that period of intensive practice was that love was not external to me. It was in me. It was like a capacity inside of me. And I realized that previous to that, I thought of it almost like a package, which meant it was in someone else's hands and they could deliver it to me or they could take it away from me. And if they took it away from me, I'd have nothing. I'd have no love in my life. I'd be bereft. But it was almost like the delivery person, this image of the delivery person standing on my doorstep with this package in their hands and looking down and taking a look at the address and saying, no, I'm going somewhere else and then walking away. You know, as I'm watching through the window, I go, wait a minute. Come back. You know, come back. You know, there'll be no love in my life. But if to switch that around and realize it's inside me, the love is inside me as a capacity, um, means that, you know, other people or situations or great art or whatever might awaken it or help enliven it or threaten it. But it's mine. It's within me. And it's a process. It's an engaged process of of the heart where um, we're almost like continually refining and, you know, letting go of what's standing in the way or, or obscuring us and, and, and keeping on going. Something that, uh, that I took away from that, that section was your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you've built against it. Uh-huh. And I think this idea to kind of continue your, what you said about, you know, the capacity being within you and, and that when you meet someone that inspires that in you, uh, it's it really then is about, to connect a, a dot from before, I guess, stepping outside of your comfort zone and, and finding what are these barriers that I've built to kind of not allow people to inspire it. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and uh, you know, in a way that also comes from my background, in uh, Buddhist teaching, because uh, the idea is like you start with a problem, you know, you're inspired by the opposite, you know, and that, that's what moves us and gets us out of bed and willing to try and, you know, uh, is, is so inspiring to think about being free and, you know, being present in that kind of love. But, uh, really we need to start with the problem because that's what's holding us back and that's what's most real for us. So to be direct and practical about things, we start with looking at our fear and our anger and how we feel about ourselves, you know, and kind of slowly unfold all of the rest so that, um, you know, it never feels like an abstraction. It doesn't feel like something we're forcing ourselves into or uh, that's being superimposed by the outside somehow. It's really a movement within ourselves that um, we can begin to see the results of. How have you seen a shift in, I guess, generational thinking about 
this sort of stuff, this kind of, uh, I guess, conscious aw- awakening or living deliberately uh, over the last, you know, 40 years? Well, I mean, the, one of the great controversies around something like love and kindness or compassion is the idea that it's trainable, you know, that there are methods. Um, I think we tend to think of these things as gifts and uh, you either have it or you don't. And if you don't, you're out of luck. But um, that's been a movement. Um, and trainable is a funny word, but uh, there is a real belief, say, in the East, you know, or in Eastern culture and Buddhist psychology and things like that, that qualities like love and compassion are also emergent properties of how we pay attention. So if we're fragmented, if we're not present, if we're not whole, there's not going to be much of a sense of connection, right? And so uh, we know attention is trainable because that's exactly what meditation practice is. And so um, there are methods and there are ways of being that will help enhance that capacity inside of us. And you know, it's not cold and it's not demeaning to say that. And, um, and they actually seem to work, you know. So it's a different kind of mindset than it was 40 years ago in that uh, I think there's more openness to the idea that, yeah, you know, um, maybe I have these old habits that are standing in the way, but I can do something about that. I can, I can challenge the force of the habits. I can replace them with new habits and ways of being and and it's a, a different sort of responsiveness to that yeah the the accessibility i guess of information uh from across the globe and different cultures has certainly made things more um more uh, i don't want to use the word accessible again yeah yeah <laughs> but but i guess it, it it has made it's it's made things uh more easily discovered than they were many years ago. Oh, totally. And and uh, and that, I think, is, is probably a good thing, you know? Like, yeah, no, absolutely. And there's really something you can... You don't have to... I mean, a friend of mine put it this way. He grew up uh, in Great Britain in the Church of England, and he said that he always used to hear... You know, from the time he was a very young child... He used to hear, um, love thy neighbor as thyself. And he loved that saying. It just like, he found it like really like physically thrilling. This thrill would go through his body. But then he got into big trouble because his question was always, well, how? We don't actually like our neighbor that much, <laughs> you know, or, or I don't like myself that much. Or What does that mean? How do you do it? How do you live it? You know, and it was only later when he got into meditation practices, uh, you know, much older, not a boy anymore, um, that he saw kind of how to, that he saw a practical path to actually changing and looking at the fact that you hate your neighbor or, you know, you hate yourself and and actually being able to undo some of that and, and replace it with, uh, a different attitude, which may not be, you know, yeah, I want the neighbor to move in with me, but uh, it might be more compassionate in, in the efforts that you take to to get a better resolution for something or whatever. So, you know, it's that movement from the abstract and the um, theoretical to something that's real for us every single day. 
uh, in the way we work with ourselves, the way we work with others. And um, that's the most important step is not just to consider it a kind of interesting field of investigation, you know, uh, it's something we actually practice. Yeah. And through that, I, I guess, creating authentic, loving connections. Mm-hmm. I wonder what you what you kind of wish to see as a continuation of this sort of practice and this changing, shifting mindset, uh, you know, over the course of the next sort of 20, 30 years and how you could you might reflect on things in that period as, you know, uh, kind of a successful shift in the way that people look at love and uh-huh. kindness. Well, I'd like, you know, I'd like, of course, it to be appreciated more and more as a strength and not seen as a weakness, uh, which also is a great controversy. Like, I don't know about getting more loving. If I were to get more loving, I would let people take advantage of me or this would happen or that would happen or whatever it is, you know, we fear and, and, uh, Really, love is a strength. It's not a weakness. So I'd like that understanding to grow. And I'd like love to be um, part of the conversation, you know, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, with somebody we feel antagonism for, we're afraid of, or times we feel very defeated ourselves, or we don't know what to do to make a difference in our lives. I would like love to be part of that conversation, whatever it is. And, uh, of course, I would like the techniques and the methods to be experimented with uh, because that's the hardest step, you know, to move from the uh, really uh, abstract appreciation of something to making it real every day in our lives. And, and I would love that, you know, if, if it was happening more and more. It would be amazing. Uh, well, Sharon, thank you so much for coming on my podcast and, and sharing your thoughts. Um, if anyone who's listening is interested in buying uh, any of your books, they can do so at SharonSaltzberg.com. Uh, and they can also tune in to your podcast, the Meta Hour podcast, uh, which is on iTunes, and hear more of your insights. Um, and uh, I guess in conjunction with some of the amazing people that you do speak with. I finish all of my podcasts with the same question, and that question is, what makes you silly? (laughs) Wow, (laughs) what a funny thing. I guess being around children (laughs) uh, brings out a very silly part of me. Do you want to know how I behave when I'm silly? (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I giggle, I'm told. Well, I just did, I guess. (laughs) Is that silly? That's pretty silly. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sharon. Thank you.